that is a wonderful reading, one of the gospel depictions, narratives of the triumphal entry all the way to the cross. And uh, it was important to read that because the text that we're going to be in today doesn't cover those aspects of the narrative. If you want to see the whole complete picture of the Passover week, you would have to look to all four Gospels because not one of them contains everything. Each one has a unique focus. And what you just read from or heard from was the Gospel of Mark, which is, interestingly, only 16 chapters long. And six chapters of the Gospel of Mark focus on the week of Passover. Over one-third of one of the Gospels only focuses on a single week in the final week of the life of Christ. But I want you to turn, if you will, in your Bible for the next few minutes, and I, I want to share with you from the Gospel of John, John's account. We're not going to cover everything. We're not trying to. But the experience that we just had together as a body by going out and then, and then following the processional coming in was hopefully an attempt to give you perspective of the joy that we have with Jesus, who he is as the king of Israel. And, and so chapter 12 in the gospel account of the day known as Palm Sunday is traditionally a time of celebration. But because we're not going to meet until Good Friday, which is this coming Friday over at Church of Christ, 6 p.m. service, where we'll actually focus on uh, the cross and the communion that we'll take together. We want to try to cover some of those things today, give you a picture of what's happening in the life of Christ as he approaches this hour that has come. And so there was the waving of palm branches, there was the laying down of their coats at his feet. This is the day when all of Israel gathered in Jerusalem for Passover. So already, because it's one of the great feasts of the Jews, a great crowd has gathered. Probably in the ballpark of three million Jews have gathered, maybe more. And they are there in this massive crowd, and now they're hailing what, who is Jesus, the son of David, the king of Israel. This day was anticipated all the way back in the Old Testament prophecy as Israel <clears throat> awaited the Messiah. <coughs> Excuse me. As Israel awaited the Messiah. It's interesting to note that uh, while this day is a day of celebration, and just like Brenton said, five days, the mood changes. We go from celebration to tragedy. We go from a shouting of Hosanna to shouting of crucify him. A tragic day. So John tells the story. He tells the story of a king who came to Jerusalem for one purpose, to die. This is the focus of Palm Sunday, to focus on the king who comes to die. Let's just take a moment to acknowledge an event that preceded this wonderful triumphal entry 
if you, <laughs> excuse me, truly want to have the whole picture of the Passover week, which ends in the death of Christ, you must understand the story of the raising of Lazarus from the dead. You really can't depict the fullness of what's going on with Christ right now and what it means unless you first see the story of Lazarus being raised. So it was the raising of Lazarus from the dead that set off the events that we just celebrated outside. Events which led to his death. And unless you understand how the resurrection of Lazarus fits, you won't understand why things happen the way they happen to Jesus. Most of us know of the resurrection of Lazarus. How many of you have heard the story of the resurrection of Lazarus? Raise a hand. Probably all of you at some point or most of you have heard that. And usually when it's shared, it's shared as an individual single event. It's set off to the side. It's something that Jesus and and his disciples uh, participated in. It's one of the six, I'm sorry, seven great miracles recorded in the Gospel of John by Jesus. But let's look closer, because there's something that leads us to where we are in Palm Sunday. Lazarus was well known. Mary and Martha, his sisters, they all lived in a suburb of Jerusalem. They lived two miles outside of town in a little village called Bethany. Uh, they were a very hospitable family. They hosted Jesus and his disciples on numerous occasions that the Gospels record. So much so that they were hospitable that when Lazarus was sick, Mary and Martha sent word to Jesus. They were close friends. And word came to Jesus to come and heal him. And when Jesus arrived, Lazarus was already dead. And after he died, a great crowd of people, because of their hospitality, because of them being well-known, because they lived in a suburb just outside of Jerusalem, because they were only two miles from the temple, they had many friends in Jerusalem. And many of those friends gathered together to mourn the death of Lazarus so that when Jesus arrived there was a great crowd even at their home two miles outside of town now there was a thought among the Jews that a spirit would would stay close to the body for several days after death but by the fourth day, the body had begun to decompose. So there was a stench. And the Jews believed that that's when the spirit would actually leave. Was when the vile stench of death was too great. Not that the spirit is breathing it in, but this is, again, this is simply the folklore of the Jews. And so Jesus waited until Lazarus was four days dead. Four days dead. To make no mistake that Lazarus was raised from death. This was not a resuscitation experience. Nobody would doubt that this man was dead. His body decomposing. And Jesus raised him 
back into that body. And then all of a sudden, Jesus shows up. He makes Lazarus alive again. He literally walked out of the grave, Lazarus, with the bandages, the, 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 the preparation of his death, those bandages still wrapped around him. They had to unwrap him so that he could have more freedom to move around. And he returned to community life. He continued to live with his sisters. They continued to host people from all directions and love people. And people thought, wow, this is incredible. And now people in the city of Jerusalem begin to catch word that Lazarus has been raised from the dead. Many of those people, while they might not have been personal friends with Mary, Martha, and Lazarus, they knew of them. And the word spread very quickly around the city to a, to a fever pitch where people began to wonder because Lazarus, who was four days dead, was raised, surely this must be the Messiah. This has to be the Messiah. Who else could do such a thing? They had been taught their entire lives looking to the Old Testament prophecies to wait the coming of Messiah. So Jesus captures the moment. He captures it for himself because his hour has finally come. On previous occasions, he's always said the opposite. My time has not yet come. Do this miracle. My time has not yet come. Let's go over here. Let's talk to these fear. No, my time has not yet come. But now, all of a sudden, everything changes. We go from this fast-paced three years of intense ministry, and all of a sudden, it slows down to one final week because his time has come. Everything is set in motion. And it's set in motion by God the Father through Christ the Son. This is what is amazing about this. Throughout his ministry, he continually avoided confrontation that would lead to his demise, lead to his death. And now all of a sudden, he is fully embracing the possibilities of death. Twice already, the Pharisees and the Jews have tried to stone him to death. Back in chapter 8, they tried it, and then they attempted again a second time in chapter 10 of the Gospel of John. Jesus knew that when his time would come, it would be a time to die. And so he allows in the final days leading up to his final hour, he allows one last miracle to raise his friend from the dead which would signify all over Jerusalem that Messiah is coming. It would also unleash an anger, hatred, animosity unlike anything that has ever been experienced on this earth from the Pharisees and the Jerusalem council and the priests as they came to kill him. They had planned to kill him from long before the Lazarus raising. Now they had the proof they needed. They were ready to completely kill him because they see him as a demon, not as God, the son of God. But from the foundation of the world, the role of Passover lamb 
has been placed upon the second person of the Trinity. And his final Passover. He had three Passover experiences in the Gospel of John. This is the last one, and it takes place. It's the right year. It's the right month. It's the right day. It's the right hour. Jesus himself orchestrates all of it. Nothing is happening by chance. The prophets laid it out clearly throughout the Old Testament. Daniel being one who said that there would be 69 weeks of years. That means 483 years from the decree to rebuild the city in the, to the time when Messiah would enter the city as the prince. The Jews counted their years as 360 day years. And Jesus entered the city on that exact day in that exact moment. This is a fulfillment. This is a plan that God the Father put together from the foundation of the world. And he put this plan upon his son, Jesus. It didn't matter what was going on between the Pharisees and the Romans. Obviously, we've talked about it. Uh, Jerusalem and the Jews are under Roman occupation because Rome is now king of the, of the known world. And there, were great, there was great animosity between Jews and Romans. None of that mattered. God somehow took full control of the narrative, of the drama, and pointed it to a single hour on the cross. Now, first, before entering the city, Jesus raises Lazarus from the dead. This is why we didn't heal, he didn't heal Jesus or heal Lazarus while he was sick. If you remember the story, uh, Jesus is quite a distance from Bethany, and he gets word that Lazarus is sick. Well, that was about a two-day journey at least to get that word to him. Lazarus had already died by the time Jesus got the word. They were asking him, he was being called by the sisters to come quickly that he might heal Lazarus. But now Lazarus is dead. They don't know that. Jesus knows it because he's omniscient. He's all-knowing. He's God. And he says to his disciples, let's go over here. Let's not go to Lazarus, which delayed even longer his arrival. By the time he arrives, again, Lazarus is four days in the tomb. The tombs were carved out of limestone, and they were in the side of a mountain. And they would roll a stone over across the entryway into that tomb. Lazarus had been prepared and placed in a tomb four days ago when Jesus arrives. Interestingly, as we look at this, in John chapter 10, turn there if you will, John chapter 10. Go back two, ver or two chapters to verse 17. I want you to see the cl with clarity why this is happening the way it's happening and who is to blame for it. How many times have you heard people say, well, the Jews put Jesus on the cross? The, the sinners, they're the ones that put Jesus on the cross. And we can have our, you know, the Romans, they're the ones that handed Jesus over to be crucified. The, the Romans did it. There was no human being 
who put Jesus on the cross. I want you to see this. Jesus said, for this reason, verse 17, John 10, for this reason the Father loves me. Here's why. Because I lay down my life that I may take it up again. No one takes it from me, no human being, but I lay it down of my own accord. I have authority to lay it down, and I have authority to take it up again. This charge I have received from my Father. So God is the one who is the architect. Jesus is the builder. He's the one carrying out the Father's plan. And everything, everything, every step, every experience that's recorded in one of the four Gospels of the Passover week, everything fits right into God's plan perfectly. In other words, Jesus is going to show up on Palm Sunday. He will be hailed as the King of Israel. He'll be hailed as the Messiah, even though the people who were hailing him thought that if he's Messiah, the reason he's coming is to establish his throne in Jerusalem, and he will repel, he will fight off the Romans who've occupied our territory. He will set up an earthly kingdom. This was, the, this was why they were, many of them were praising him. It was even later in the week that the disciples said, is this your time to establish the kingdom? They too thought that that's why Messiah was coming, to establish the kingdom. They didn't understand that on this trip, Jesus did not come to establish his kingdom, but the reason he came to the earth was to seek and to save lost people. It would be at the final trumpet of God that the kingdom would be established on the earth, not until. You and I have not experienced the kingdom of God yet in that way, in that sense, in a material, real, physical sense. We have experienced the fullness of the kingdom of God, spiritually speaking. Amen? The Bible says that the kingdom is righteousness, peace, and joy in the Holy Spirit. If you walk in righteousness, peace, and joy, you have all you need in this world. Because we're still experiencing that in a spiritual sense. So while people were thinking that the Messiah was setting up his throne on earth, they were wrong. They were praising him with a wrong motivation. They should have just received him for what he said for what he did, and that was reach people with the gospel, with the message of his salvation. But they didn't. So let's pick up, if we can, at chapter 12, verse 1. I'll be brief. I'm just going to read. I don't know about you, but I just think reading the text. You know, I, a pastor reached out to me this past week and said, hey, man, I'm praying the Lord really, you know, bless you and your sermon this coming Sunday. And and, and we had a nice dialogue, and I responded and said, I'm praying that this weekend, in pulpits all over this county, pastors will get out of the way and let the Bible preach. Let the Bible be the Bible. So let's read the text. It says in chapter 12, verse 1, six days before the Passover, Jesus therefore came to Bethany, where Lazarus was whom Jesus had, past tense, raised from the dead. This is now later. Jesus raised him from the dead. Then Jesus went to the wilderness, 
with his disciples. Why? Because his time had not yet come. And things were getting so heated, so hot, they wanted him dead. They were looking for him. So he escaped them. And now, because Passover week is here, he comes near to Bethany, which is only two miles from the eastern gate of Jerusalem. So they gave a dinner for him there. Martha served, and Lazarus was one of those reclining with him at a table. Mary, therefore, took a pound of expensive ointment made from pure nard. Nard was a particular wonderful spice that came from India, from the Himalayan mountain region. You know that India literally is mostly just the foothills of the Himalayans, which are higher than the Rockies, the foothills of the Himalayan mountains. I have been in the northern reaches of India, a district at the very tip of India, just south of Nepal, called uh, Gangtok. The people there look more Asian than they look Indian. It is actually a district, it's a kingdom. It has a king. And it's the Sikkim district. And we were able to go just beyond that city of Gangtok, further into the foothills of the Himalayan mountains. We were up so high, I was struggling to breathe. <laughs> and we saw the prayer flags. The Muslim and other types of religions uh, had their prayer flags blowing. And, and we looked off in the distance and we could see uh, the highest point on the earth. It was a scene I'll never forget. As we look upon the mountains, I'm telling you, when I saw the vastness of those mountains, it just caused my hands to do this. It's like all of a sudden my hands on their own were defying gravity. They just went like this. As I began to just worship the one true and living God for his creation. Well, this spice comes from there. This spice was in a bottle or a container that was about 12 ounces stored inside of an alabaster container. This was an expensive uh, perfume. Uh, the amount of it would have cost a year's salary. The amount that, she, that uh, Mary had. And something very odd and peculiar happens. And what I'm going to share with you is a small, minute picture of what is going to happen in a more massive way in Jerusalem. Mary takes the bottle, she opens it, and she pours out that expensive perfume on the feet of Jesus. She actually washes his filthy, stinking, muddy feet with an extremely expensive bottle of perfume. If you want to see a pure love display, there it is. This is an act of love on Mary's part for her Lord. Then she does something even more peculiar. She takes her hair, 
and she wipes his feet with her hair. You would think it would be stinky, smelly hair, but that perfume's too nice, man. That's good stuff. She walked all over that town, and everybody could smell her coming. They'd get a waft of that aroma, that perfume. She is showing the depths of her love for her Lord, and she knows he is God. He raised her brother from the dead. At the same time that this beautiful display of love is occurring, verse 4 says, but Judas Iscariot, one of the disciples, he was who, uh, he who was about to betray Jesus. He said, why was this ointment not sold for 300 denarii and given to the poor? He said this not because he cared about the poor, but because he was a thief. And having charge of the money bag, he used to help himself to what was put into the bag. Sounds like a politician to me. <laughs> Jesus said, leave her alone so that she may keep it for the day of my burial. Jesus is ready for death. For the poor you always have with you. He wasn't saying poor people don't matter. He's just stating that his hour of death is about to happen. Therefore, her showing such an immense love was acceptable. Every other day, let's, let's give to the poor. But today, she's doing the right thing in her worship. For the poor you always will have, but you do not always have me. When the large crowd of the Jews learned that Jesus was there, they came not only on account of him, but also to see Lazarus raised from the dead. He was already raised. Now they could see him. But look what it says. Whom he had raised from the dead. So the chief priests from Jerusalem made plans to put Lazarus to death as well. You have a picture of the most pure, innocent love of Jesus in Mary's actions, and at the same time, the most vile, putrid, smelly evil of Judas and the chief priest. Do you see what's about to happen in Passover? The convergence of these two, love and hate, coming to an explosion on the cross. This is what Jesus did. Jesus went to the cross. That love would conquer hatred. For any Christian in this day to hate anyone, that's a sin. To not walk in the love of Jesus in spite of the terrible ugliness of this world is to fall short of the calling of God and the purpose for which Jesus came to die. He died that we might have life in him. Later in this chapter, he actually says, if anyone seeks to save his life, he will lose it. But if you lose your life for my sake, you will find it. For Christians today, listen, we are lost in Jesus. We have surrendered to Jesus. He is our life. 
Therefore, whatever happens in this world, how ugly, how shameful, we still love Jesus, and therefore we let the love of Jesus shine through us to others. That doesn't mean we don't hate unrighteousness. That doesn't mean that we can't have a righteous indignation, a righteous anger when we see a child being exploited by the sexual revolution today. We should have a righteous indignation and we should rise up and say, that's wrong. That is wrong. But the very people that we're speaking to who are in favor of the harm to a child, we still love them. We want them to know Jesus. This is why Jesus went to the cross. Even though they were trying to kill him, he went there for them. He bled and he died. He became a sacrifice so that they could one day be saved. Let's close by looking at Isaiah chapter 53. If you'll turn in your Bible to Isaiah 53, there's more that I would share, but I, for sake of time, would like to just get to the closing here. In Isaiah 53, do you begin to see the, some, the significance of the, of the raising of Lazarus and the events that happened at their home prior to Jesus coming to be, to be praised as the Messiah? It all fits. It all fits. And what was it that God had in mind? Well, in Isaiah 53, God the Father gives self-disclosure to the events leading up to the death of Jesus and why. I want you to see this. Verse 1, who has believed what he has heard from us? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? It was, it was in the Old Testament, it was a shadow. They didn't understand. They thought it meant earthly kingdom. It didn't, it meant salvation. It was a spiritual salvation. It was the changing of a heart. Not with hands that they would be circumcised, but a circumcision of the heart that Jesus came to us and, and brought. For he, speaking of Jesus, look at this, grew up before God the Father, like a young plant, like a root out of dry ground. Everything was against him, but this little tiny tender shoot is going to find its way through the hardened soil of the wilderness, and it's going to bloom, it's going to blossom. He had no form or majesty that we should look at him and no beauty that we should desire him. That means that if Jesus himself showed up in his glorified, well, in his glorified body, we'd know. But prior to that, when he first came to the earth, if he were to walk into Bureau Bible Fellowship this morning, not a single person here would have said, <gasps> we'd have looked at him and thought, yeah, he's just an ordinary looking guy. wonder who he is and move about our business. This is how God brought Jesus into the world. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows. How many of you know the feeling of sorrow? How many of you have mourned and are mourning the loss of someone? Jesus identifies with sorrow. 
He is acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised and we esteemed him not. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. But here's the truth. He was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. God the Father put Christ the Son on the cross to bear the full weight of God the Father's judgment against sin and the sinner. He who knew no sin, sin became sin for us. Please understand doctrinally, that does not mean that Jesus literally sinned. That means that the one who never sinned took on our sins. And God the Father looked at him as if he were the sinner. And God in his anger, in his wrath, and in his judgment completely Completely annihilated the body of Jesus. He crushed him here in the text. This is Isaiah 500 years before Jesus is born, telling us that God the Father crushed Christ the Son. And with his wounds, those of us who would place faith in Jesus would be healed healed of what of the disease of sin that brings forth death oh you'll physically die but you'll never spiritually die the wages of sin is death but that death for you was placed on jesus he died in your place all we like sheep have gone astray does that leave anybody out if i were to ask the question how many of you were, were a stray sheep. I said were, so past tense. Some of you might still be a stray sheep. But in a church service like this, probably most of us have been saved. But, but how many of us were a, a stray sheep? I hope every hand goes up. Because the, the Bible says all were stray sheeps. And we have turned everyone to his own way. He reinforces, everyone has turned his own way. And the Lord has laid on Jesus, him, the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. He's allowing things to play out through the Passover week. He's not going to bucket. He's not going to turn and run. The most courageous people on the earth are Christians. You take the person who's a prize UFC fighter, he has nothing on Christians. He might be able to take physical blows, but would he be willing to die for the name of Jesus? Every true believer would. Like a lamb that is led to the slaughter, and like a sheep that before its shears is silent, so... Jesus opened not his mouth. 
Why would he? This is God's plan. By oppression and judgment, he was taken away. And as for his generation, who considered that he was cut off out of the land of the living, stricken for the transgression of my people. And they made his grave with the wicked and with a rich man in his death, although he had done no violence. And there was no deceit in his mouth. He had never committed a crime ever, yet he was punished like a criminal. Yet it was the, here. oh my goodness, look at this. It was the will of the Lord, capital L, capital O, capital R, capital D. You want the Hebrew translation of that? Yahweh. We're talking about God the Father. It was the will of God the Father to crush him. He has put him to grief. When his soul makes an offering for guilt, the will of the Lord will, shall prosper in, I'm sorry, he shall see his offspring, he shall prolong his days. The will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. Out of the anguish of his soul, he shall see and be satisfied. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous. By the righteous death of Jesus, the only one who was innocent, in order to truly uh, pardon a guilty party, a truly innocent party does the pardoning. Another sinner can't step in and pardon a guilty. It has to be an innocent. This is what Jesus did. He accounted, listen, make many to be accounted righteous. Jesus not only took on our sin and punishment and anger and wrath of God, Jesus also imputed to us the righteousness of God. So in one sense, he took on our sin and suffered our death. And in the other sense, he gave us, in place of a sinful life, he gave us his righteousness that in the eyes of God, we would be viewed as righteous. The Bible says we're justified by faith. Justification. Just as if. We never sin. That is how the Father sees those who have placed their faith in Jesus. All it takes to be saved is to simply acknowledge Jesus is God. And what happened to him in his death and in his resurrection was real. And I believe in him. I believe in him. At the second in your mind that you truly believe, you are saved. Long before you walk an aisle, long before you raise a hand, long before somebody prays a prayer over you, you don't have to have those things to be saved. Those are works. The Bible says you're saved by grace through faith. It is not by works that you're saved. You just have to believe. And he shall bear their iniquities. Therefore I will divide him a portion with the many, and he shall divide the spoil with the strong, because he poured out his soul to death and was numbered with the transgressors, yet he broke the sin of many and makes intercession for the transgressors. Oh, what a wonderful picture. We close with this thought that Jesus goes to the cross. He takes on the wrath and anger of God. He imputes to those who believe in him the righteousness of God. And then he lives, the scripture says, to make intercession for us. 
you do not have to go to a priest or a pastor or a small group leader or a Sunday school teacher or a prayer warrior in order to receive help in your time of need. You have full access through Jesus Christ into the very throne room of God at any moment, on any day, in any situation. You have full access. And Jesus is there interceding in your behalf. Folks, it doesn't get any better than that. Amen. And we haven't even gotten to heaven yet. It only gets better as we go forward. Amen? I pray that you're walking in understanding today of the Passover week in the merging of anger and hatred and love and forgiveness and how Jesus took on that anger. He took on that hatred. And more than that, he took on the wrath of God. And God the Father knew that he could, in fact, forgive the sins of the world. And therefore, he put him on the cross. And Jesus fulfilled everything the Father said. And Jesus, next Sunday, we will celebrate as our resurrection Lord. Amen? Amen. Father, thank you today. This has been a good service. It's been a long service. But we've covered some territory. And we've let the Bible be spoken I pray that, Lord, the words of the Bible, the words of truth coming from the text would, tr would, 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 would challenge us, would, would change us, would transform us into a deeper understanding of the triumphal entry and of the Good Friday that we're going to experience here later this week, that we might as Christians have such a deep appreciation for what our Savior has done for us. Our salvation has nothing to do with our reputation in town. It has nothing to do with our, our uh, uh, philanthropy. Our reputation has nothing to do with our, our goodness, our works. It is solely the work of Jesus. And for that, we are thankful. In Jesus' name. And all God's people said? Amen. Okay, Christian, get out there and love people this week. Jesus did it for you, now you get to go out and love others. All right.